Hello and welcome to the season finale of Apples to Giraffe Season 1. Um, I'm one of your hosts, François Vigneault, and I'm joined as always by Jonas Manaconner. Hello. As always, uh, on Apples to Giraffes, we take a look at the art of adaptation, which can be uh, books being turned into movies, comics being turned into video games, or just about anything else that we want to take a look at. In every episode, we're going to give you a little bit of new and notable news in the world of adaptations. We're going to do a deep dive in one particular piece of narrative art, and we'll end the show with our plugs. We were originally going to do this episode earlier in the month, and then we switch things around and then we delayed recording and uh now i hope i remember what this book is about <laughs> <laughs> it's a total shocker i don't think any podcast has ever um has ever delayed uh or switched up with their recording I, i'm i'm very ashamed that we're the very first podcast to have this problem well but speaking of which what is, what are we talking about today again i forgot myself uh we are talking about the book the bone clocks by david mitchell ah uh, yes okay the bone clocks yes. i remember that one <laughs> But before we do that, we need to talk about news, what's new in the world of adaptations. And I have a little uh, news item here. You had sent me the other day, you sent me a, a link to an article about a book by this author, Percival Everett, that sounded interesting. And I had already had him kind of on my radar. I was like, oh, I need to read one of his books. I forget where I saw it, but it sounded interesting somewhere. So I put it on my holds on Libby. And now I see today that that book is being adapted for a film. Uh, the novel is called Erasure. The book, uh, the author is Percival Everett. And then it's being written and directed by Cord Jefferson, who uh, worked on the Watchmen HBO show. That we've okay. Talked about yeah, yep, yep. Um, and it's going to be starring Jeffrey Wright. So yeah, I, I, like I said, I haven't read this book yet, but it was the one that was on my to be read pile. I don't know. What, what about you? What did you? Have you read anything by this guy? I never have, but that sounds pretty solid. I read a review of, that was the review I sent you the other day for his uh, the author's new book, Dr. No, which is not uh -huh. the James Bond movie, but it's rather like a, a weird up, update on the concept of a James Bond type story. Yeah, And I remember reading through the review, I was surprised that I had never read anything by this author. He seemed like really right up my alley with um, sort of his metafictional uh interests in the way that he tells stories and everything i was like oh i'm surprised i've never seen anything by him so i was i was like oh, okay they'll this will be good and and it made sense that you had seen something else by him already yeah he must be in the zeitgeist right now or something mm. but yeah also when i looked at his books he has like uh more than a few books he had like eight or ten or twelve or books or you know something like that was like, yeah oh, it's kind of prolific i've been writing for a while the review that i read said that he's you know like a really unique writer who is like no one else on the in the in the in the field right now so uh well the review did a good job it got me interested yeah very interesting uh what about you what what, what news is uh, piquing your interest. So this is a little bit of a follow-up, but um, we had previously talked about how um, uh, Viet Tan Yen's uh, uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, The Sympathizer, had been optioned to be a film, and it was going to be directed by Park Chan-wook, and Robert Downey Jr. was attached to it. But a lot of the rest of the cast has recently been um, revealed. I won't uh, mention everyone's names because there's a lot of people, um, including uh, Sandra Oh, maybe is the most uh, well-known. And um, the the main, it looks like the main character is going to be um, 
Hua Swan Day, who was in Cowboy Bebop. Um, I don't know many of the actors, but uh, most of them are of Vietnamese descent, which is appropriate for the source material. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that this is going to be uh, definitely like on the everyone's radars come whenever it comes out next year, the year after, whatever. Yeah, and I think it's actually going to be a TV show. It looks like. It's not oh, a, is that right? Movie. Yeah. Oh, I didn't even realize. Though, even though it says A twenty four, it's an A twenty four production, but it's TV. Oh, interesting. Or it's I not have, TV; it's HBO. I have a feeling that we might be coming back to um, might be coming back to the sympathizer in season two of Apples to Giraffes. So it, it keeps coming up in my in my mind. Sure. Yeah. We'll follow up. Yeah. And I guess, I guess speaking of the, I mentioned that this is going to be the final main episode of our first season, our 2022 season of um, Apples to Drafts. We did, this will be our 13th regular episode and we have multiple bonus episodes in there. So it was super fun to do this show with you and with the listeners and everything. And we're just going to take a short break uh, over the holiday, winter holiday season. Um, I'm going on a long vacation and then I'm also moving and you I know have a lot of stuff going on too. So we're just going to take a little breather and then we're going to be coming back next year with all kinds of new um, adaptations and discussions. Yeah. It also gives us a chance to catch up on reading and um, <laughs> make some episodes and all of that. And, and listen, um, you know, I, I do a lot of my the reading for this or rereading um, in audiobook form and it, um, I fall behind on all my other podcasts. So, right. <laughs> you <laughs> can like, catch up start, on those too. Yeah. Yeah. You can like start to have a life and, and everything. It, yeah. it does surprise me because it's, uh, because we do like the, the podcast is about books. It's, uh, it's sort of funny. It does take a, it does, does take a while to prepare for every single episode of the show. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. And it's funny. Cause I like, it's like, it's like reading on top of my leisure reading, you know? Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which you, yeah. which you, you have an impressive track record. You read, you read a lot. You read more than I do for sure. Um, I think uh, we can give readers a very quick sneak peek into season two in that we're going to start having our first guest hosts who will join um, Jonas and I and discussing some books. We're going to also have a couple of interviews that we're going to do with creators about their, uh, their own works and their own like um, process with adaptation, uh, mm -hmm. be it uh, them adapting work or wor their work being adapted. And um, lots and lots of uh, fun books and movies and stuff to, to, to do. Do you have any that you think were, uh, I know what this is nothing is promised, but do you have any titles that you think are going to show up next year? The one I, that's coming to mind right now is the um, Gideon the Ninth. Right. Which I have read already, but I have not read the rest of this. There's two more books in that series. I haven't read those. But um, yep. yeah, it's a fun sci-fi book. Also, has a whodunit element, which is kind of cool. funny. <laughs> I, I, bought, I, bought my, uh, I bought my copy. It's ready, it's ready to be read over the break. Cool. Um, and I think we're going to maybe tackle... Um, I'm not sure which books we're going to tackle of his, but I think we're going to finally tackle one of our favorite authors in fantasy, which is Joe Abercrombie. Uh-huh. I think that that's going to be really fun. So um, I was just chatting about his work with somebody else who was saying that he was surprised uh, that uh, his books haven't been adapted yet. So we're going to discuss that. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, should we get to our main topic? Yeah, let's do this. Okay. How would you introduce people to the bone clocks if they don't know anything about it or anything about David Mitchell? Or... Right. Right. I would say that if you don't know anything about it, I would try not to tell you too much because I think that there are some really fun surprises along the way. And obviously, we are going to completely spoil the book. Uh, we are going to try and keep some 
the more hard spoilers for a little bit later on in our discussion and keep this relatively spoiler free. But I might just tell somebody, hey, you know, this book's pretty good. Um, I really enjoyed it. it you, if you if you like kind of like, um, I don't know, like down to earth stories with surprising um, with like a surprising fantastical twist to it, just go. I would say just go for it in some ways. That's a pretty lame introduction in some ways, but I I I do I do like this book and I think it benefits from some surprises. Yeah, I I, I think it's um it's one of those books that's like a uh, quote unquote like elevated genre book. You know, mm -hmm. it's like it's like literary sci-fi or fantasy. Um, like it totally like it, it's not like ashamed of being the genre, but it's like you know this this will be covered would have been covered in the New Yorker instead of you know Tor.com or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Like I would say that what this is, this book is kind of like a, 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 it's a, it's a series of novellas that follow different characters at different points in their lives. Um, from, I would say, and I think you can safely say that it takes place from the early eighties and into the future. And it is also um, every so often there are very surprising and um, introductions of fantasy or science fiction that like may catch the reader off guard. And so it's like as if you're reading like a normal, quote unquote, a normal literary novel. And then all of a sudden in the middle of it, like, uh, you know, uh, something something magical happens in the middle of the novel and then things go back to normal again. Yeah, that's true. And if you're if you're into that basic concept, I think you'll probably enjoy a lot of what's what's on on display here. Right. And then the, the book that um of David Mitchell's that people are probably aware of if they're aware of any of them is the, is Cloud Atlas because right. it was made a movie. Yeah, I like Bone Clocks a lot more than Cloud Atlas, but they do share a lot in common. Uh, and also all of David Mitchell's books take place in the same universe. So there's, there's little like fun connections to try and spot between them. Yeah, I think they're definitely 100% is a Mitchell verse. And I think this is the book that absolutely cements every all of his books is happening in the same universe. Uh, for sure. So he's definitely doing like creating oh, this, like a metafiction. Oh yeah, you, I I guess that's true. This this is the one that kind of like is at the center of them, kind of like make all the other ones are referred to in this one in some way. Yeah, I think this one connected the dots. Like before this, you know, he had like some. You could kind of be like he has themes or ideas, but mm -hmm. in this one, he was like, no, no, it's not like themes and ideas. It's like literally like all these things are happening in the same. Uh, you know, he, he's created like the Mitchell cinematic universe or the Mitchell literary universe or whatever. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's the same thing that like Stephen King has done essentially where like, you know, he'll make reference to the events of it in 112263 and stuff right, like that. Yeah. Right, 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 yeah. right. And again, I would say that if people are interested in that kind of approach to books and literature and stuff like that, they'll probably going to like this book too. Cause this is really all about like long-term connections over time between disparate stories and universes and genres and everything like that. And so if you're into that idea of just being of like, you want to see the connections between a bunch of different stories, um, this, this novel is for you, I think. Mm -hmm. I think maybe we could, how much do you think we can safely get into before spoilers? Could we like start the first section or, or i 100 percent think we can i think we can start the first section which um is called a hot spell and it takes place in 1984 and we're gonna go you know quite a distance in this section before we will call spoilers on it but um i think i think we can give away quite quite a bit in this in this first uh first novella mm -hmm. um <laughs> 
Yeah, so uh, we've got our main character who we meet is a teenage girl, Holly Sykes. Mm-hmm. And like you said, it's 84. And she is dating a older man who's in his 20s and it's like a used car salesman or something. <laughs> and she's having, a, she's having a fight with her mom about that. Her, her mom has found out that she's dating this older man has forbidden him to see him. And uh, so she uh, throws some things in a bag and runs away from home. And then she finds out that uh, she shows up at her man's house and finds out that he's uh, sleeping with her best friend. Right. Uh, and she doesn't want to go back home. So she continues running away. During this part, we, we also learned that she has a younger brother, uh, Jacko, who's like kind of a weird kid. And before he before she runs away, he gives her a hand-drawn maze. And he's like, you have to learn this. Mm-hmm. Oh, and then, uh, yeah. And then along the way, uh, we also learned that through kind of like flashbacks, we learned that she used to hear voices mm-hmm. and she would have a woman uh, show up in her, who would appear in her room at night and talk to her. Emmanuel Constantin, I think. Yeah, yeah, Miss Constantine. Immaculate Constantin, yes. Yeah. So Miss Constantin is the person who shows up. She doesn't know her first name at the time. Yeah. But um, Miss Constantine shows up in her room and, and talks to her. And Holly to- had told her that there was a girl at school who was bullying her. And then the next day, that girl like got into an accident. I don't think she died, but like her leg was broken or something like that. Yeah, I think so. I think there was something along those lines. Yeah. And that this freaks Holly out. She tells like her parents, I think, about um, Miss Constantine. They take her to a psychologist who is uh, Dr. Marinus. Is that right? Yep. Yep. And he does something to her where she stops hearing the voices. He like puts his fingers on her forehead. And the voices go away after that. She calls it the radio people, by the way. Exactly. Yeah. She she calls the voices in her head the radio people. And then they they stop for her after this treatment by Dr. Marinus, which makes her um, which like makes Holly's mom like uh, less racist because the doctor is a Chinese doctor. And she's like, she's like, you know, <laughs> and um, so now Holly has and you get a lot in. There's something that you that you you mentioned there, just the fact that you get a lot in flashbacks. That's something that's very particular to the book and the way that the story is told is everything is in like a close first person. Um, and each person has like a kind of a unique voice. So this 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 yeah. chapter is from Holly's voice. And she's always like moving forward and backwards in time. It's very stream of consciousness in some ways. Um, and she has all of her normal like teenage obsessions like she's like into the talking heads and she like wants to have like nice clothes and she's really really in love with her 24 year old boyfriend even though she's 15 and he ends up being a scumbag but then it will also like move you know from the everyday moments to this how she used to have the radio people in her head and then what she thinks about somebody it's always moving back and forth um quite fluidly yeah, so while she's running away from home, she meets a boy from school who is uh, Ed Bru- Brubeck. Yeah, Ed Brubeck. I always want to say Ed Brubaker because of the <laughs> comic track. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. And he's like, you should go back home. But then he like goes along with her for part of the way. They have a little, they have a little weird moment at, um, at an abandoned church. Um, and then he he sends he sends her on her way to a farm where he's heard like you can pick strawberries um, like as a job basically if she if she really wants to go ahead with running away right right he was planning to do it the uh, the next summer so that he could earn money to get a Euro Rail pass yeah and so she's like yeah I'll do that too and 
uh, I don't. We should probably uh, start getting into spoilers. Yeah, I think that yeah. I think that this she's about to have an encounter, which is going to lead us down the spoiler path. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, just basically, if you're, I would say, if you're intrigued by the setup and also the idea that maybe um, some fantastical elements are going to enter into a very everyday sort of story i think we both recommend this novel and uh you should go check it out and then come back yeah totally so yeah the the section with spoilers will be marked by um in and your podcast player with a chapter uh so you can skip that chapter and we'll also put in the show notes the time code for when we stop talking about spoilers so you can skip to that if you want to do that yeah so the next thing that happens i think is she meets esther little is that right yeah, she she's going along the river um, and she meets an old woman who's fishing, uh, who is just a weird, quirky old woman. And this woman, um, she has like a, you know, she behaves weirdly and she's a she's a bit of a strange person. Um, I think she she ends up she ends up knowing Holly's name without Holly knowing how that she knows her. Um but Esther demand uh, it doesn't demand, but she asks Holly if, in exchange for some water, I think, tea. Uh, some tea, some green yeah. tea, um, if she can, she will be able to take sanctuary. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she doesn't explain at all what she means. And Holly, of course, has no idea what she means. But she says, "Sure, sure, no problem, crazy old lady, you can have sanctuary." Then that encounter is over. You know, the Holly keeps on going. Um, she ends up hitching a ride with two um, communists. <laughs> I like oh, these yeah, they're just, they're, yeah, they're distributing the, um, it's like the daily worker or something like yeah, that. Yeah, right? I think yeah. so. Um, I like these people. They're, pr- they're, they're, they're pretty funny. Um, and you get a sense that, the, you know, like she's embarking on like a new stage of her life. Uh, but they're um, in the house, like all, all of a sudden she's like chatting with these two young communi- communists that she's hanging out with. And then they suddenly stop moving and a man appears in the house and um, murders both of them. Yeah. And the way this happens is all kind of like very, Holly's very confused about <laughs> the way this happens. <laughs> uh, so it's a bit confusing too, I think, for the reader. Yeah, this man appears and murders them, and then um, then one of their corpses like reanimated or something. Yeah, he's asking, and he's asking Holly weird questions about things that she doesn't know about. He's like, "What are what is your connection to horology? Who are the the anchorites are coming for you?" And like Holly's like, "What is going on? I don't know what's going on." And you, the reader, also have no idea what's going on. And I think Mitchell handles that really what really well overall. Like you're really just thrust into a crazy situation, um, which is one of the reasons that I recommend if anyone can jump into this novel with zero spoilers the way I did. Uh, mm-hmm. It's the the scene is. Pretty pretty fun when you get to it um but yeah one of the one one of the uh one of the corpses re reanimates and like fights fights this this man and then i think he he ends up getting his like his head bashed in with a like a ashtray or something like something along those those lines yeah the guy dies yeah i forget exactly how it happens but uh holly ends up like not there her memory of this is all erased yeah, she just comes to and she's like at the strawberry farm or on her way to the strawberry farm. And she doesn't remember anything at all about like getting picked up by these these people or anything like that. Right. And then like people at the farm are, have heard on the news that these these this couple died in this house. And they're like, oh, no, there's like a serial killer out here. Did yeah, they died like, because they were communists. It was, it was a political <laughs> attack. And they're like, Holly, that's right by where you were. And she's like, I don't know anything about it at all. Yeah. 
and then the uh, you know she gets some sage advice from another person who has previously run away and who says you know like you no matter how bad it is back home it's take that and t- multiply it by 10 that's how bad things are going to get if you stay on the road and then she holly is still determined to stay away from the family but then um uh ed brubeck shows up at the very last moment and he says uh Jacko is missing and so then they're going to have to go back and the 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 novel ends like on a on a cliffhanger like what's what's going to happen we don't know and you are immediately thrust into a brand new uh, novella with a brand new main character right and then one thing we didn't mention is that somewhere along the way she saw or she thinks she saw Jacko um like appear under this bridge and there was a mysterious like vision that was part of it she wasn't like some tunnel opened up under there or yeah something. she's yeah. not sure what she saw at all but she thinks she saw jacko and he like waves at her and guaranteed um we are n- definitely like not gonna both in the, the the in terms of like trying to keep keep uh keep the story going but also it's like really hard to remember everything that happens in this novel there are so yeah. many like weird little details like each one of these little novellas is full 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 of stuff stuff happening and character building and world building and things like that and um so for sure we're gonna skip over skip over a lot as we go through yeah because it's like each section has its own plot and a lot of it is not important to the overall plot exactly Exactly. And I think we'll talk more about that when we're talking about how to adapt this to <laughs> uh, the next section is entitled Myrrh is Mine, It's Bitter Perfume. And the main character is Hugo Lamb. Yes. This little uh, scumbag college student. <laughs> he goes to like, it's like a fictionalized Oxford or Cambridge, I think, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He is... He's a little cheat. He like cheats all his friends at cards whenever they play cards. There's like an old man that he is purportedly friends with, but he's stealing his stamp collection. And he's uh, ste- he steals a car, like a classic car from one of his friends and sells it. Or he he's he's in the middle of a plot to uh, sell his friend's, like his friend's dad's car and like make a bunch of money off of it. And all just he, he it's it's kind of fun because he um Again, this is presented in the first person. And at first you think the guy's just like kind of like debonair and charming. And then you realize that he's probably a full-blown psychopath who like lacks the ability to connect with other human beings and just sees them as objects for him to do with as he pleases. So early on in this, he meets Miss Constantine. It's the same woman that um, Holly was seeing in her when she was a kid in her bedroom. Uh, We learn her name is immaculate constantine and he's uh got the hot for her yeah. immediately <laughs> like oh i need to seduce her yeah he's um, a real horn dog yeah yeah um and uh she is grooming him to uh well we don't learn this right away but uh she's grooming him to join her group of immortals yeah she says you know there's a way that you can stay alive forever and he's like and he you know he he's he's mostly just trying to think about how he can get her into bed but he's like oh well tell me more and then she she she's gone and he's been sitting in the the church for hours and hours and uh the security security guard is kicking him out and he has no idea what's going on yeah she does things with uh she like makes him like lose time and like um she also like speaks to him uh through the voice of through the body of another guy i think too yes i forgot that that happens later yeah yeah yeah. then it it cuts to it's later and he is in on vacation in switzerland with some friends yep 
and yep, he but- meets uh, he meets Holly there, and she is working in the bar. He has got the hots for her also. He tries to ask her out a couple of times, and she uh, rejects him, even though she she finds him kind of charming too. Right. And then uh, some his friends are hanging out with some some women, and Hugo is like, watch out, those are prostitutes. And they're like, no, they're just really into us. And the next day, after sleeping with them, their pimps show up and like, are like give us thousands of dollars yeah they're extorting these like these dumb cambridge uh college students uh for out of of all their cash and hugo hears this going on downstairs and uh jumps out the window and (laughs) shows up at holly's place and then there's a blizzard and they're snowed in so they're just snowed in together yeah and they had they pass a romantic uh night together and strangely enough uh hugo lamb feels love for the first time in his life he like falls in love with holly sykes he's he's really into her you also get a little bit more information about holly sykes and what's been happening since last we saw her about uh, seven years ago um jacko never was found her younger brother um and um yeah, so she she's she's quite haunted haunted by that. Yeah, he is kind of like you you know you have to, Jacko wouldn't want you to be miserable about this. He would want you to like live your life. Mm-hmm. And then he leaves in the morning when whenever the blizzard passes. He goes, uh, she's going to work, and she's like, meet me at work later. And he leaves to go back. Uh, and when he steps outside, um, he is picked up by some guys in a car, and they're like. You know, we're with Miss Constantine. Come with us right now if you want to live forever. Right. And this is like this is kind of like his for, uh, branching path. Like he could go with them, or he could go with Holly, and he chooses to go with them. Right, right, exactly. And uh, they're like, they're like, yeah, we've been, we've had our eye on you. You seem like a real scumbag. Uh, so why don't you join our like our really cool club uh, and live and live forever with us? And so you. There's definitely like you're starting to get the impression that like um, there's some sort of vampiric thing going on or something like that. You're not you're still not exactly sure. But now he has chosen to join the Anchorites is what they call themselves. Right. I forget if they actually like go to the temple at this point, you know, their, their little thing or that's 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 later. That. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So that's the end of that section, right? Yep, exactly. Yeah. Oh, and I forgot that um, we one thing is that uh, he gets a call from his father while he's in Switzerland. He's like, uh, the police have been asking about you. Um, what's the deal? And he's like, oh, no, no big deal. But he knows like some of his crimes are like coming to light. And, and right. He, yeah. Also, his his friend that he was trying to pressure into um, selling the, the Aston Martin vintage car um, ended up committing suicide by driving the car off the edge of the uh, off the edge of a cliff. And um, and Hugo Lamb's first thought is he's like, oh, what a waste of a beautiful car. Um, uh-huh. He and so you he's uh, he's definitely uh, he's he's definitely going from being like just a run of the mill cad to um, uh, a real a real bad a real bad guy. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then the next—I don't have the title here for the next. It's a—it's called the wedding, the wedding bash. I think this okay. is the shortest of the sections, if I uh-huh. remember correctly. And like in some ways, the least happens. Even though I—I I, I quite like the main character. It's uh, the Ed Brubeck, who uh, was um, the guy who picked up Polly in the first place and went. Yeah, and he created Winter Soldier too, right? Yeah, <laughs> he did. This is between doing all those things, and then and then he he created Winter Soldier, and then he comes back. Yeah, but this part takes place in two thousand four, and uh, Holly and Ed are married at this point, and they have a child. Right. They, 
Ifa is the name of their child, if I remember correctly. Right, yeah, Ifa, and he is a wartime correspondent, and he is addicted to it. He's he's like loves being in the war zone. Right, and this is in 2004, so he is coming back from Baghdad, and he's. This is one of those things where he was supposed to have done his final uh, tour, being embedded with soldiers in, in in Baghdad, and he's supposed to be done and just do normal journalistic work. But he's a war junkie, and so he secretly has already agreed to go back, but he hasn't told Holly about this yet. Right. They play a little game in here where it's cutting back and forth between um, him being in Baghdad and. Um, them, him being in England at this wedding, and you don't know at first whether this taken place uh, before or after the wedding. Mm-hmm. And it, it turns out it's a flashback. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the meat of this section is, um, I mean, the, the um, relevance to the larger plot is that, well, first, Miss Constantine shows up again and um, inspects Aoife to see if she has any uh, psychic ability, apparently, mm-hmm. that's what she's doing. Um, and uh, and then he erases the, her me- the memory of this from her and from Eva and Ed. And then Eva goes missing, and Holly has she goes into like a, a trance state, and she speaks some numbers. And then Ed happens to realize that this is a room number in the hotel, mm-hmm. and goes to that room, and Eva is in there, and she has fallen asleep and been locked in. Yeah. And if Holly hadn't, you know, said those numbers, she might, you know, starved to death or something in there. Yeah. And then and um, and that's about it. Other than I mean, this this section, it's 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 really well written in some ways and you get a good sense of the character and his his struggles. But uh, it doesn't have as many things going on as um, some of the other some of the other chapters do. Yeah, at least not relevance to the to the larger plot. Um, Yeah, I guess the, the, the other I mean, the big key thing here is that um holly's psychic abilities are coming back right and that and that her child does not have them and that miss constantin has been monitoring the family and is interested in finding the psychic abilities for some reason or another yeah uh and they meet the other kind of psychic dude who does not show up again but seems to have some kind of real psychic ability i can't remember what his name is he's like oh yeah Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah Uh, yeah, he and he's that that's his like, yeah, right. he kind of right. like takes it seriously when Holly is like having her vision. He's like, oh, this yeah, he's is like real. A, he's like a fortune teller. Right. Like right. Uh, that's his yeah. profession. Right. He's right, like right. Mr. Silverhands or some, something silly like that. I just looked it up. It's Dwight Silverwind. Silverwind. OK. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot. Uh, David, uh, David Mitchell really likes um, uh, wild names. He, he gives a lot of people like uh, really, really distinctive names throughout his, his novels. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate that. <laughs> Speaking of which, the next section is Crispin Hershey's Lonely Planet. Right. And Crispin Hershey is, I f- what it, is he called the bad, the bad boy of English letters? Right. And um, I can't remember. I think he's supposed to be very specifically based on. Um, it's like Martin Amos. Or right? Yeah, it's supposed to be really like Martin Amos. It, it's like his father was a famous writer, too. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so I'm like relatively unaware of Martin Amos's oeuvre. So uh, I, I wasn't able to tell how, how on the mark some of these uh, criticisms are. I think also that um, David Mitchell also tried to weave in some of his own personality into Crispin Hershey, maybe like the worst parts of it. Yeah, it's funny because there's some stuff in there that were this is like oh this is real writing advice that he's giving in here like crispin hershey's like bombastic opinions where he's like he's like don't use the word seem it's like it's like weaselly <laughs> <laughs> there's also a part where he uh, where i think david mitchell uh 
winkingly um, sort of, sort of um, uh, tries to defuse any um, any criticisms of uh, bone the bone clocks because he talks about how uh, like a hack writer has criticized Crispin Hershey's novel as um, having a ridiculous supernatural subplot that doesn't make sense with the rest of the uh, of the of the realistic novel. So I think uh -huh. he was having a little fun with the uh, with the critics and the and the audience right there. Yeah. So this part it takes place over a long time. It, it says here 2012 to 2019 yeah so it's a it's a long thing but it, it starts off with him he's has a new novel out and it's completely panned by this one critic and this sets the tone for the way it's been is being received in in the rest of the press too right we've met this critic before this is one of hugo lamb's friends right right i forgot that he's one of hugo lamb's friends yeah crispin hershey uh does not let this go <laughs> he holds on to this grudge and and then um we check in with him like uh approximately like once a year over this no over yeah, often, this section. oftentimes at uh like oftentimes at literary book festivals and things like mm -hmm. that and um he's basically he's he's less and less popular as as time goes on uh in all of these Right. And at one of these book festivals, there's a big crowd around the table of Holly Sykes, who has a book out about her psychic experiences called uh, The Radio People. Right. And he is very dismissive of her. He's like that that woman who writes about angels and, you know, foo-foo bullshit. And then uh, they kind of keep encountering each other. And he actually like grows to like her and Aoife. They're, they're all friends. And at one point, she kind of proves her psychic abilities to him by calling every uh, coin toss. Tosses a coin in the air, and she calls it correctly every time. Right. Yeah. Including um, calling the, that he is going to drop the coin and have to go and pick it up. Right. <laughs> and then there's another part where they are on an island in New Zealand or off the coast of Australia, I can't remember. But I think um, it's off the coast of Australia, if I remember correctly. Right, and she she has a vision where she speaks in the voice of uh, some long dead uh, native, and this this is really um, this really proves it to him. You know that you know she's saying words that she couldn't possibly know and things like that. Right, right, right. And um, and in addition to developing this positive relationship with Holly Sykes, which um, seems like it's like very much a reflection of like being a writer and meeting interesting people, he also develops an extraordinarily antagonistic relationship with Richard Cheeseman, the critic. Um, so much so that at one point he at a at a literary festival in Columbia that they're both at, Crispin Hershey decides that he's going to like really punk Richard Cheeseman and he puts some cocaine in his bag and he tips the police off that there's cocaine in the bag and he thinks this is going to be like the most hilarious prank. And it will just be like, he expects that it's just going to be like humiliating. Yeah. And that he'll just, you know, be detained for a while at the airport and, and, but that's not what happens. No. Richard Cheeseman goes to a Colombian prison for years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's in prison for six years. Um, and, uh, yeah, and then we towards the end of this section, we eventually get the the uh, the final encounter of Richard Cheeseman and um, Crispin Hershey, uh, uh, two two great names that go great together. And there's a little detail too where um, Holly Sykes has said that she um, she always sees uh, when she thinks about uh, Crispin Hershey's future, right, right. she sees a spider, a spiral, and a one-eyed man. And so when um, Richard Cheeseman shows up. He has an eye patch because he lost his eye in prison. Mm -hmm. 
And Crispin Hershey thinks, oh, like, this is it. I'm going to die. Um, but it, it turns out that Richard Cheeseman, he was super frustrated, but he's actually kind of forgiven uh, Crispin Hershey, if I remember correctly. Yeah, he's like, I know you did it, but I come to terms with it. So you can just live with the guilt of what you did. And he does feel really guilty about it. Yeah. But uh, also the other running thread through this is that there's a woman who with a, um, who keeps tr- trying to show um, her poetry to Crispin Hershey and, and saying, you know, giving him these books and saying, you know, this is your last chance. And, you know, he's always just throwing them away. So uh, it turns out that she is a psychic. The, a, kind of a running thing through this is that all the people who have visions of the future call it the script. And she's, she's like, you're in the script. You know, it's important that you read this because then you will like tell the world about the psychic war that's going on. And at the end, she shows up and uh, shoots him and says, you know, this, this will get my name out there. Like killing you will, you know, get my name out there and tell and awaken people to what I'm trying to tell them. Right. Right. And as he's dying, he sees a, a spiral in the carpet and a dead spider and like a Lego pirate, I think is the one I'd be in. Right. <laughs> Not a very helpful vision to get it as you're dying, you know? No. <laughs> so. It's just like, uh, it's just like the, the, the final proof that you're, that everything is following, following, uh, according to plan. And that is the end of Crispin Hershey's section. The next part is. It's called an urologist's labyrinth and it takes place in 2025. And this book was, came out in 2014. So that gives you a sense. It's, uh, even further in the future than we are now. Um, and this has a little bit of the kind of uh future technology stuff that we saw in um candy uh not candy house the other one the good squad visit from the goon squad yeah yep where like uh phones are different and tablets are different and they have a like auto they have like auto driving cars i think uh at this point they like tell the car to park and stuff like that which actually if in in all honesty this his uh his vision of the future in 2025 looks like it's going to be pretty it's going to be pretty spot on. He's uh, he's pretty well on track, I think. It's not. It doesn't seem too unusual. Mm-hmm. So Marinus is the doctor who saw Holly when she was a child. Yes, but he is now in a new body uh, of Iris Fenby. So yeah, this is this is the kind of chapter where we actually learn every what's what's actually going on. This is yeah. This is the veil is is lifted, and you just uh, and Doctor Marinus is a player in the whole game, you know. So it's a as if like everything up to this point has been like all the side characters in a Doctor Strange movie or something, and then like finally like the and like 90 80% of the way through the book it like turns into a story about Doctor Strange and so <laughs> yeah this is like uh this is like the real deal like the Dr. Marinus is revealed to be an immortal uh an immortal spirit who travels from body to body and has been alive for i think something like 600 years and naturally when he he or he, what well, he or she dies, uh, is transported into a new body. Has many psychic abilities, including the ability to take over people's minds and to blank out their memories and all kinds of other things. So, and we, and then we also, it's also revealed very soon that this person has 
interacted with the plot of the novel in previous moments. He, this is the same doctor who treated Holly when she was a very young child for her connections with the radio people. And also, it turns out, is uh, Iris Fenby, the doctor who uh, helped with Holly's cancer treatment, I think, in the in this book or a previous, in this chapter or a previous chapter, I can't remember, but something along those lines. Yeah. And uh, it's also revealed that Marinus is working with uh, other immortals and they call themselves the horologists. And there's, there's actually two types of immortals in the, in their group. Um, the mechanism by which they like reincarnate is slightly different. Yes. Yeah. I can't remember exactly who is which, but one of them uh, is, her consciousness is transferred to a child who is dying who or, and the child actually does die and they take over the body yes and then the other kind is like reborn into a brand new child i'm not sure why this was important to have these dis distinctions probably it's important in the big universe of david mitchell's ideas and things like that right yeah and there along this uh, along the way, we there's a flashback. There's interwoven with flashbacks of Marinus when he was a young girl living in uh, Russia, was like a peasant, and like yeah. had to like you know had already been reincarnated a couple of times and and like had to like you know pretend to be like a saint and stuff to like uh, get out of her peasant situation. Right. And then and the, and through this like came to light of the other immortals who come and and are like, hey, we you're one of us. And uh, then there's also a flashback to when he first met uh, Esther Little, who is apparently like the oldest of them. Yeah, she's something like 10,000 years old or something like that. And yeah. she um, she's an Aboriginal woman and she always gets reincarnated into her own tribe every single time. She doesn't like go all over the universe and like, you know, be a bunch of different people. She's always in the same in her same group. And so she's like deeply connected with her uh, with with the land and the spirit in like uh, in Australia. But yeah, but he's super impressed by like how old and powerful she is. Yeah, like much more than the rest of them. And we also learn that they are at war with this other group of immortals, the Anchorites, who uh, it turns out the way that they operate is there's a set number of them, like 12 of them or something. Yeah, I think so. And they, uh, so if one of them dies, they have to replace them. So that's why, that's why they recruited Hugo Lamb. And they have to find a psychic child and drain their psychic essence and bring the child willingly to this temple. They can't come like under duress. So they have to like kind of seduce the child. You right. Know, you know, tell them there's candy up there or something. Uh, so this is what um, Ms. Constantine was trying to do to Holly until Marinus shut off the psychic ability. So that like made her inedible to, right. to them, basically. And this section is just full of jargon. There's a lot of jargon that the 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 horologists use to describe everything, like the what the the ceremony that the that the 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 anchorites is they're doing it in the temple of the blind Cathar, and they are decanting the black wine. And right, the, the black wine. Yeah, and then you know the the characters are suasioning people into not remembering things or or, or all, all all kinds of other stuff. So the there, there's a whole panoply of psychic capacities that the um, that these two um, that these two superpowered segments have uh, at their disposal. What happens? Marinus uh, is trying to convince Holly that this is going on. Right, because uh, Marinus has been contacted through Esther Little, who did a very like uh, one of these almost like um, 
uh, like send a telegram 50 years into the future. Yeah, it's like, like Back to the Future 3, yeah. Yeah, Esther Little went to a school, a music school for, for blind children in Norway and gave them a big uh, donation and said, the only thing that you need to do is you need to give this envelope to Marinus in this play in New York. In uh, And the person's like, when do I do it? And he says, when this thing falls off of the shelf. <laughs> <laughs> and then that thing falls off of the shelf 30 years later. And so the the you know they do deliver the 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 cassette tape recordings to to Marinus and so it's revealed that uh, Esther Little has actually secretly been living inside of Holly Sykes for uh, for right, the last right. forty years or something like that. Yes, and that's what she meant by trying to get uh, asylum or refuge or whatever she said. Um, exactly. Yeah, so they need to convince Holly that this is all real. Also, at the same time, one of the anchorites has come to them and said, "I you know I." I've recanted my wicked ways. I need to, um, you know, I, I am turning against the anchorites and I'm going to show you a, a way into the temple and how to destroy it. And the, uh, the, the horologists are very so, suspicious of all this. And they've also realized that like their um, like major domo, uh, they like in who takes care of their um, fancy uh, building in New York has been, has betrayed them and all kinds of things. There's all kinds of like stratagems going on, but basically the decide it's too good of an opportunity. They just have to, they have to take it. Right. Um, Even if it's a trap, it's right. It's worth the risk. And they've tried this before. The, the first mission happened back in in the 1980s when um, uh, when we first met Holly Sykes. That was so, some of what was happening in there. Is the aftermath of the the first mission, which totally failed, and many of the uh, the horologists died during that. Right. Oh, yeah. And we also learned during this that Jacko was not Jacko, but was uh, Shilo, um, right? One of the horologists, and Jacko died uh, when he had pneumonia or something when he was a child. And that's when Shilo um, entered his body. And that's why he's like a weird kid who listens to Chinese radio and draws mazes and stuff. <laughs> but uh, Holly is very, very suspicious and not not taking it. But she eventually is brought over and she she decides, OK, like this, this might be real. There might my, my 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 brother Jacko might be in this this temple. I'm going with you. Let's let's do this. And so they begin the mission and they go to the temple. And uh, they, they do manage to um, bring Esther Little out of Holly, but she has no body and she's kind of like riding shotgun on on various members of them, you know, right uh, in the she'll take over for a little bit and be like, this is Esther talking. Uh, let's do this. <laughs> <laughs> And they, uh, so they, they, they go, they go, the anchorite comes, um, they are teleported to the, the, this temple, which is built in, um, like a mountain, I think maybe in like Switzerland or something like that. They go into the temple. And at this point, like the novel just is, it's full on like a giant action movie, right? Like it says, it's the action is as big as anything in um, Doctor Strange or Ghostbusters or something like that. It's uh, there's like, like Indiana Jones almost. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's people are shooting like laser beams out of their foreheads and creating magical shields. And they're going to, they have a giant like backpack bomb. They're going to like set off in the temple. <laughs> and there's a, there's an evil portrait on the wall of the blind Cathar. Right, that, which like, is actually, which is actually like the, this guy, this blind Cathar, he's like, 
become the temple like over the right. centuries. Yeah. And the, the the portrait like responds to them and their like and like you know their attacks and everything. But it does turn out that this all was a giant trap that the anchorites laid. So then suddenly there's the twelve anchorites are all there versus the four or six uh, orologists and the, the full on you know Avengers Endgame style psychic yeah. battle starts between everybody. Right, including Hugo Lamb is there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the same age that he was when he and Holly first met. Right. And she's, she's like an older woman now. Right. She's like 55 or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I forget exactly how the battle plays out, but the horologists basically win, but they yeah. are trapped there. Right. That, because Esther Little, I think she she does detonate the bomb, which breaks the temple, which that means that it gets... You're really, we're way deep into like the lore here, but basically that means that the anchorites have lost their ability to feast on the souls of, of the little children, and so they're go they're all going to die. And the the only surviving people, because uh, even Marinus's body dies, but Marinus manages to you be inside of Holly's body. Um, so they're, you know, once again, it's like one of these situations where somebody's riding shotgun with somebody else. And they find like, there's like a little door and them and a couple of the anchorites go into this door. And it turns out that it's a labyrinth and it's the labyrinth that Jacko drew decades before that he had promised, had made Holly promise that she'd learn how to navigate it even in the dark. She, yeah, she recognizes it after a couple of turns. She's like, wait a minute. This is it. I know and this. So she, yeah. And then so she's like, okay, we're going to This is Unix. I know this. <laughs> <laughs> and it turns out that the maze itself is Jacko, is La Shilo, who has like recreated himself as the maze within the temple, just as the blind Cathar was that created the temple. It's very weird. It's very um, big time uh, metaphysical stuff is going on. They have a final encounter with uh, Immaculate Constantin um, and Holly kills Immaculate Constantin by beating her to death with a rolling pin. Oh yeah, which which yeah, she had brought for like defense <laughs> from their from the horologist's kitchen. Yes. And it is using it. Uh, and then so there's like a golden apple on a tree and she touches it and is transported back to the horologist's lair where there's right. a painting of a gold or uh, the same tree with a golden apple on it. Right, right, exactly. And then there is, um, and then uh, Mar Dr. Marinus is left behind. His soul is left behind. But it turns out that uh, Hugo Lamb is also there. And it's hinted that both Hugo Lamb and Marinus are going to join forces and find a way to get out of the temple after all. And it turns out that Hugo Lamb also, he did not go, um, he did not use the apple, which is like a one-way ticket out of the maze. He didn't use it because he knew that Holly was there and he wanted Holly to get up because he he still somehow loves her after all this. Uh, and then there is one more final section. Sheep's Head. It's a very simple title. Sheep's Head 2043. Right. And this is uh, this is really interesting because this book comes to like, basically it comes to a conclusion at this just giant climatic battle. And then there's this very long sort of afterward in some ways, which um, is really interesting because it changes the tenor of the whole novel in some ways. And Holly is a, a what, uh, what, in her 70s now? Yeah, like 75, something like that. Um, and she's living in Ireland. And uh, something has happened where uh, it's called the Endarkment, which is some kind of environmental collapse, disaster. A lot of technology is useless or they have limited power. Yeah, like electricity is limited. The the internet is goes down most of the time. Um, there was a uh, 
like something like 10 years before there was a solar storm that um like caused the crashes of like uh like 600 airplanes including an airplane where um Aoife, holly's daughter that was on and so uh Aoife and her husband died basically everything that um you you know like that in your in your worries about the future you might think might becoming in our lifetime is happening in this uh in this this world um there are this the, like food is much more limited they're in a section of western ireland that has been uh there's a big land lease that the chinese government has taken out on it um which at first the characters uh, you know years before they thought this was like a really shameful thing that like um ireland was la- leasing out all this land to like farm cattle for china which is like a the new growing power but at this point it's actually like probably one of the best things that's keeping stability um in the in the region and there has been a nuclear meltdown at a nuclear power plant in england off to the east and um yeah things are like not going very well uh, Holly is taking care of Aoife and another young boy. Uh, who was his name? It's not. It's not Aoife. It's Aoife's child, right? Her granddaughter. Uh, it's Aoife's child. I'm so. Yeah, I'm so I can't sorry. Remember yeah. his name. Uh, Rafik is the name of the other boy. Uh, Lorelai is the child, and Rafik is the is the other who uh, was a um, a refugee from somewhere in uh, Morocco. And yeah, like, and you're you're just, and this this is the first chapter that has been told from Holly's point of view again. So it kind of creates a a bookend to the whole thing. Yeah, and it's kind of knowing that this takes place in the same universes as other books. You know that the, they're headed for the future in Cloud Atlas, where um, people are living very primitively. Right. It's a like the, 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 this. You you quickly get the sense that they're on the edge of the apocalypse and. What the way that that ends up arriving is kind of it's kind of interesting. I, I um, it it just arrives with a, a small little announcement, which is that the Chinese government has decided to unilaterally pull out of their um, of this land lease agreement that they have with for land in Western Ireland, and so suddenly there is no longer the protection of the of the Chinese government and the Chinese security forces and. Everything collapses very quickly. Like there, it, it's um, suddenly there are like these raiders who are coming in and stealing all the solar panels off of every building in the village. They come to Holly's place and the place of her neighbor, and they've sent the children away because they don't they don't want them to be caught up in all this. But they take the they strip the they strip the uh, the solar panels right off the roof, despite these women's complaints, and they give them um, suicide pills, um, and they say, you know, like you you're probably going to want these pretty soon. It's, it's quite grim. Um, they realize that they probably have a couple weeks worth of food, uh, but they only have maybe uh, three weeks left of insulin for Rafik, and they are not going to be able to get any more medication for him. A bunch of people die in a firefight in the village uh the village is going to need to like fortify itself to try and like for the characters to just stay alive and also there were some interesting um disturbing elements where one of her neighbors uh, one of holly's neighbors seems to potentially have the power in the future and is all about um like god's will and uh, like right yeah that part was um reminiscent of um parable of the sower almost like you right know, yeah right, in, these, right, in right. these dark times like some like populist demagogue like kind of uh takes over exactly 
Exactly. And um, but we don't get all the way into that because um, there's a surprising um, sort of deus ex machina. A boat shows up uh, off of the peninsula, off of her, um, off of the little farm that they have. And it turns out to be the um, Icelandic Navy. Um, and they are in the company of a uh, Dr. Marinus, who has been reborn once again. And the Icelandic Navy is there because... Um, Lorla, Ifa's child, her father was Icelandic, and so she's an Icelandic citizen. And so the Icelandic Navy is going around the world, catch picking up all the Icelandic citizens and bringing them back to Iceland. And and then basically they're they're given a choice. Uh, Doctor Marinus can use uh, his, his powers to suasion the <laughs> the the crew into thinking that Rafik has a right to go along with them but there's no way that he can make it so that Holly and the other uh, older woman can come along either um, there is a teary goodbye where uh, Lorelai and Rafik go with Dr. Marinus to the supposed safety of Iceland and Holly and her neighbor are left behind with the dog and uh, left behind with their suicide pills and then that's the end of the novel right that's a lot of stuff happens in this novel, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And like a lot of it is like, not, like we said, like not really. Like there's like a overarching plot that's like the um, the war between the immortals, and then like everyone has like their day to day stuff that is important to them. Right, right. And the, I'm sure we're going to get into it. Like there, there's a lot of questions about like how much you cut or how much you leave in, depending yeah. on like what kind of adaptation, or even if this is ripe for an adaptation. I'm not, uh, I'm not 100% sure that it is. Right, right. I thought it might be fun if we talked for a brief minute about like the connections we spotted to his other books. Sure. Yeah. The magazine that um, Ed Brubeck works for is Spyglass, which shows up in some of, some of the other books. Right, that's the one that there's like the nuclear, um, the nuclear, uh, rep the reporter reporting about the nuclear plant in um, in Cloud Atlas. In Cloud Atlas, yeah. Yep. And then I think it's also in um, what is the one, uh, Slade House. Um, I think there's a reporter working for Spyglass who shows up in that too. Right. Um, speaking of Slade House, Slade House is really like a micro, is like a side novel to this novel. It's really about um, kind of freelance, freelance uh, carnivores, as they're called, like people who are not anchorites. They're not part of the team, but they're they're free freelance vampires, basically. Yeah, they have a different mechanism by which they prey on other people and stay immortal. Right. But the uh, and I, I think it's mentioned in this book in uh, Bone Clocks that the horologists are fighting against all kinds of carnivores. Yeah. That there are other ones out there besides the anchorites, and these, they encounter some of them in Slade House. It's just that the anchorites are the worst because they're, like, they're organized, right? They're like vampires who are all buddies with each other, and so they have like all kinds of technology and money and everything like that. Right, right. Dr. Marinus shows up as a character in the Thousand Autumns of Dezote. J Jacob Dezote or something like that. Yeah, I have not read that one. Nor have I. But uh, he also shows up in Utopia Avenue, which the one of the characters in that is a descendant of the Jacob Dezote. Okay. Um, one of the members of the band. Hugo Lamb is a cousin, I think, of the main character in Black Swan Green. Mm-hmm. Um, which is quite funny because Black Swan Green is a very, very uh, down-to-earth novel. So it's like funny that it also takes place in this universe. 
Yeah, but there is there are some things that happen in that where it's kind of like, is this a real supernatural thing that's happening or not? And absolutely, you don't know. yeah, yeah. The organization at the end that um, Dr. Marinus is going to found in Iceland is Prescience, which is going to end up being the organization that the uh, futuristic people who go to the future Hawaii in um, Cloud Atlas are from. Oh, okay, I don't remember that. It's like really in in a weird way. I really do think that this is like what what David Mitchell is doing is like really like the literary equivalent of like the Marvel universe or something like that. He, he's just really going for it. It's like really speaks to him and he, he keeps adding and embroidering on the edges. And like, he, there's never, there's nothing that he's like, Oh, I can't like, I shouldn't make this be connected. He's always like, Oh, maybe I can like wrap this up in, in the thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was mainly what uh, the ones that I spotted. Yeah. But it, yeah, that's the, all that stuff is super fun. <laughs> well, there's a, like the the pleasure of recognition, right? And like you put the pieces together, and you're like, oh, okay, this is what's going on here. Mm-hmm. Which I mean, I lo- I used to love all those Marvel Marvel books too for the same reason, you know. Uh-huh. You're like, oh, yeah. Oh wow, that would be great. Uh, like there could totally be the like the handbook to the David Mitchell universe, like with all the characters like laid out in like where they rotate around and everything. Yeah, you have the drawing of them where they're like. This. <laughs> <laughs> i almost would like to make a little fan i could almost like make a little fanzine of that uh it would be pretty funny actually yeah that would be funny it's like powers and abilities none <laughs> <laughs> or it'd be like powers uh holly sykes has the normal strength of a human woman yeah totally <laughs> <laughs> psychic visions yeah we should we uh talk about yeah the uh, complications or struggles or whatever that would be involved in adapting this. Absolutely. Let's get into it. Yeah. Yeah. There's just, I think the main thing is just a lot of stuff. So it's, yeah, it's the question of how much do you include? Yeah. I guess my pitch for this would be to have it be a TV series, Mm -hmm. a limited series, and it's just six episodes, one per section of the book. And I think you would, you could cut a lot of like the incidents that are involved in each, you know, um, uh, individual characters plot you know we don't need to know the, the absolute ins and outs of everything of Crispin Hershey's life uh because mm-hmm. there's a lot there's there's stuff about like who he's married to his marriage is falling apart and then he has these stepdaughters who hate him and it, that stuff is not super important right it's like great fun to like kind of like immerse yourself in that world but yeah it's the difference between whether or not you do one episode per story or one season of a tv show per story right oh wow um, that would be a lot yeah it would be crazy no but like if but there, there's almost enough material in almost all of these to like do a whole season almost of like like you know all the ins and outs and things like that i don't uh-huh. think that the book would support it right like i don't think that there would be enough people especially since this book i do think it drags in the middle a little bit like um i mm. i personally found the first two sections to be uh extremely engaging and i was like what i wanted to know much more and then the, i found the two sections after that to be the both the the one the, the wedding and crispin hershey to like drag quite a bit yeah the fight the big giant psychic fight is fun on its own terms and then i i thought that the the finale was sort of magnificent and like re requalified the whole novel for me and like made it like a greater work than it was before right yeah but i mean otherwise i think a lot of it is like yeah especially that that final fight and stuff is like cinematic i i think like even like a lot of the like psychic powers and stuff are not you know, it's not like we were talking about with um, Fifth Season, where it's like, how do you show this on screen? It's like kind of weird. I, I think no, it could absolutely be shown on screen. Yeah, it seems like his inspiration is straight out of uh, the kind of 
cinema that we've all watched and like or comic books and things like that you know like people are shooting laser beams out of their out of their hands their hand chakras and their their third eyes and they're you know they, <laughs> there's these souls kind of floating around and like going from body to body and you can kind of see the souls and they can create light and things like that it's all very it could all be done very visually i think so yeah i guess that's basically my pitch is yeah one one episode per per book and then i would kind of in the book you you kind of it walks that line of are you confused or are you like uh intrigued by the mystery of what's going mm-hmm. on you know um and i think maybe for a tv audience you would kind of want to like not conceal what's going on so much mm. Uh, so I think I would throughout, like kind of as a runner on each episode, I would show a little bit of this war between uh, the horologists, the anchorites, you know, like show them, you know, they talk a little bit about like, you know, you got that kid and we weren't able to stop you. Like, I, I like, I want to see that. Yeah, know? like little, the, yeah, like little, little, little action, tri- like scenes at the beginning of every episode to like set the set the tone and then you go back into normal world maybe or. Right. And then maybe we even see we see that flashback with um when Marinus met Esther Little, you know, that could that's like a cold open of an episode or something. Yeah, exactly. I think uh, I think that 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 makes a lot of sense. Um, And you could bring I think that I think that basically the first episode and the first novel works really well. And I think that the level of surprise that's in there when you see like you know, uh, like things like an an, a body being animated and things like that. Mm-hmm. I think that that's all going to work really well, and you don't need to explain any more. But I think that the next episode with Hugo Lamb gives you a lot of opportunities to explain things a little bit further. Right. Um, and it and I think that the second episode of a TV show would probably be about the time when you would want to like start getting a little bit more information rather than getting it in the fifth episode, you know, where like in this novel, you get most of the information in the fifth episode. I think you'd probably want to get that a little bit earlier. Right. Yeah. In the first section, it starts you with, um, you know, Holly is a teenager and then it flashes back a little bit to when she was a child when um, we had um, Miss Constantine. I think I might start with her as a child when we see Miss Constantine mm-hmm. and then we get into later. So you kind of know maybe a I don't know. You're teased a little bit more about. It's like that. It's like that kind of like a horror open, right? Where you start yeah. with the little kid, and then like the, you have a little bit of a. It's something to get the the because I personally was engaged by the novel like right away. Like I really liked her voice, but it's a different kind of like people expect different things from different kinds of movies and novels, right? Like, and so you you need to let people know in the first couple minutes of a TV show that it's going to have like some kind of creepy supernatural element at the at the minimum in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise, it's just like, I don't know, slice of life thing about uh, this teenage girl. Yeah, which I like ate right up. I loved it. But mm-hmm. at the same time, it's like I can totally see that like the people who would like that might be thrown off when it turns into a psychic vampire battle. And the people who want a <laughs> psychic vampire battle might like not sit through the first 40 minutes of an episode. That's just about like uh, my so-called life or whatever. Yeah. But I also I can absolutely visualize like the, you know, this little girl in bed and like this um, shadowy little- woman sitting in her appearing in her bed you know i mean yeah. appearing in like her bedroom that could even be i mean in all honesty that like the, the the first like five minutes of it can roll before the credits even start right and they like set up the whole thing and then you have your like yeah your cool your cool clockwork bone clockwork <laughs> bone clockwork <laughs> credit sequence oh my god that yeah that would be so like kind of hacky it's like um <laughs> it's like the uh 
that makes me think of the cover of the Velvet Underground's fourth album, Loaded, is um, artist who did it was like, I just heard the band name. I didn't know who they were or anything. So we just do like a Velvet Fog coming out of the subway. <laughs> it's like literally the Velvet Underground. I, I can totally imagine the bone yeah. clocks, like the, like, you know, like all the clockwork going and then you see the different names. And then at the end, like you see that it's all a skull and or like, a, you know, like yeah, and, or it's and a skeleton. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then, then like, then the bone clocks and then the Owen clock is right over the, uh, the eyeball, <laughs> you know, like I could tell, I could, Hire me to design it. Uh, like somebody else can animate it, but I will give you your your thing. No problem. Yeah, I'll storyboard it. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh. And I think the other thing too about adding in, like letting the viewers know a little bit about the supernatural element is one thing is I think you need to get it across that the anchorites are evil earlier in the book. And like, I think you need to see some of the things that they're doing um, maybe mm -hmm. like, li like, you know, uh, instead of being, you're told a lot of stuff towards the end and it's like, you're, you, I think you want to viscerally get that it's a bunch of evil vampires and like why the horologists are fighting against them and why the, um, and why, uh, Holly decides to go along with it. Yeah. Uh, what do you think about having, say it's a TV show, um, having each episode be from like, you know, this kind of limited first person, almost like Holly Sykes becomes a background character in the, mm -hmm. in the other episodes. And it's like, this one is just about Crispin Hershey. You think yeah, that, I, that would continue to work or? I, I like it a lot. The only problem is, yeah, I think it could work. And it, I also, it might help you a little bit with um, the casting problem. I think you're going to have in this one. We've come back to this over and over in the show, but um, you know, this, this takes place over six, six decades basically yeah um and uh there you need multiple actresses to play holly sykes in all the different roles but if you if she's more of a background character that like everyone's performance is important but like you can kind of hire like uh like a big shot actress for the first section where she's a teenager and you can hire a big shot actress for when she's an old lady but then in the sections between that you can kind of <laughs> get away with having a, a little bit of a not as big of a star yeah i think so yeah. like i think that the same and i think that the same actress could probably play holly sykes in her 50s and in her 70s with the with makeup yeah. so you you can you can cast a really go-getter actress in in their in her 50s to play in the big psychic battle and in the in 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 the aftermath and you can catch cast a great teen teen or 20 actress in her 20s to play her in the first two and then like maybe you know uh at the wedding and at crispin hershey's thing that you can have like a maybe a slightly less uh, prominent uh middle-aged actress yeah you're not watching um house of the dragon are you i started it and i didn't i didn't continue okay uh i did not think i would like it but i, re I really like it um, oh cool but yeah, this this deals with the same thing where like um, they recast. They, there's like a time jump between every episode, and so they recast a lot of the mm -hmm. parts. And the at the lead actress in the first couple episodes is like really really good, and then when they recast her, it's kind of a, a bit of a shock. Mm -hmm. um, and then the new actress is good too, but she's just like it's not her fault. She's just like not quite as compelling as the um, the original one. Right. And I mean, I think we're, 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 we have another big model for this now. This is another show that I haven't watched, but The the Crown, right, is like the, right. the go-to model for this in, in, in television. And I think that if, um, like, if I thought that the Bone Clocks could, like, support six seasons of television, then I'd be like, well, it's going to be like The Crown and you're going to recast Holly as, ma uh, as many times. And it's going to be, you're going to get, like, this huge actress to play her every single time. But uh, it doesn't really work with the 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 stuff that we have here. 
Yeah. I mean, unless you like invent a lot of new material and like every season, there's going to be like advances and setbacks in this war. And yeah, yeah and I don't know. Also, I don't think you can even like, you know, if you pitched it as like six seasons or three seasons of a TV show, you'd just be asking for it to be canceled after two. So um, yeah. And then everyone would be frustrated. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, I think that the you're a hundred percent and I think it's too much, it's too much material for a movie. Um, so I think that the right, the right level is to do a, is to do a TV show. And if you wanted to, you could do a little bonus special uh, that would be Slade house that would just happen off to the side. Yeah, totally. Like Slate House could totally be its own little X little bonus to, you know, the bone yeah. clocks hyphen, uh, uh, you know, colon Slate House. And then you would get like one extra little thing and Marinus would appear or whatever. Yeah. And then you you could do, um, because there's all this other stuff in the David Mitchell universe, you could put in, you could put in all kinds of Easter eggs for people. You know, you could have a Utopia Avenue album sitting in the background and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah that would be great. Like the, that would be a lot of fun, and it doesn't cost anything to do that. And it's it, it's like a lot of red meat for the fans, and the other people don't uh, aren't. It's not going to detract from anything else. Yeah. So yeah, talking about you know casting and recasting people, I think neither of us really had any solid casting uh, for anyone because you know these issues. Uh, I don't know. What did what did you think? No, that's exactly right. Like I, I was, I contemplated casting it, and I was like, okay, am I going to be like casting six six actresses to play Holly Sykes and 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 everything, or even like two or three? And at a certain point, I was like, I'm not sure if I'm going to cast cast this whole this whole thing. There's so many. There's also just so many characters and everything like that. You have to like figure out where to draw the line. Did you yeah. have any um, inspirations though? Um, for a couple, uh, I I kind of like saw an actor in my mind you know like while i was reading it so for okay. like hugo lamb I, I was kind of seeing um ewan rian who was um ramsey bolton in um game of thrones oh, great. yeah 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 you, you know torture of the young <laughs> great joy so that uh, would actually know. oh i was just gonna say that would be great at the end you would get that would be very surprising for the audience where he has like a little bit of a heel turn at the or the opposite of a heel turn right oh yeah what do you, is that just a face, a face turn? turn? A face turn? Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> yeah, because he, like casting him, you, you would be like, oh, he's evil. Yeah. yeah, right, 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 right. And then for Crispin Hershey, the author, I have Gary Oldman. Oh, that's uh, awesome. That's yeah. awesome. And he can be just the one actor, because even though his thing is only seven years that it takes place. Yeah, over, no, so. for sure. For sure. The only, the only real character who... Well, there's a few, but the only one who is like a real challenge to do like multiple, multiple is... Um, is Holly? Is Holly? Well, I'll I'll take on the the Holly challenge just really quickly, and this is just really off the top of my head. But um, I was thinking about um, M.M. McKay, who is a character in Sex Education. She's like a kind of a like um, brassy working class girl in that, and I think she she would be able to do a pretty good job for uh, the cool. younger Holly Sykes in both both the first two sections. Yeah. Oh, and then the other one that I had is just I don't remember the specific members of the horology or, or anything but I was like uh Riza should play one of them I don't know why sure I just want to see him <laughs> I just want to see him showing up and being like yeah I'm immortal yeah that would be good <laughs> there is a great there's a kind of a like a great dark joke in the in the 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 Oh, uh, you're talking about horology. Okay, perfect. Yes, yes, that would be great. He would be perfect in that. I was thinking about the anchorites. There's a great set of evil joke in there where, um, like the 
the uh, the helper of the horologist is an Indian man, and he thinks he's going to be become like one of the anchorites. And like one of the horologists is like, dude, look around, like. Do they you only notice anything? Yeah. yeah. Do you notice anything in common with these like twelve like beautiful young white people? Like, there's they're not going to let you in on the club. Um, right. Right. So, but yeah, but the but the horologists by by contrast are very um, multi ethnic, and they've all been like multiple ethnicities beyond whatever ethnicity that they currently are. Yeah, and for some reason they alternate gender every time they reincarnate. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I love it. Yeah, that no, that, I mean, yeah, definitely when the horologists show up, it's like very um, Avengers Assemble and like it's an opportunity to have like some funny uh, cameos and uh, cool actors uh, doing their doing their little bit there. Yeah, it's kind of reminds me of um, uh, on the show What We Do in the Shadows. There's a part okay. um, in some episodes where they have like the Vampire Council and it's almost like, um, what's his <laughs> name? Um, like Pee Wee Herman is there. Um, okay. <laughs> And and uh, I think Wesley Snipes is there because he's like playing a vampire. He's like, yeah, I really am a vampire. <laughs> oh, but he is Wesley Snipes. He's yeah, he's Wesley Snipes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's kind of awesome. Actually, just uh, uh, while we're before we move on, uh, there's something I, I, that as especially as I was thinking about it, and then especially as I was rereading it, I was like, oh my god. I the thing with the anchorites does it not seem like straight out of like the QAnon stuff like it's like this evil elite that like oh prey yeah and they on, prey like, on they, children yeah. they prey on children and they're like they're, they're 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 secretly in control of everything and it's I was like like it seems like the QAnon theories are straight out of this novel it's like someone read this read this novel and was like oh like people are gonna totally believe this yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's like one, it, the reason that uh, conspiracy is so compelling to people is like because it like preys on this thing of like the children are in danger. Yeah. And that's always yeah. like the thing behind any like, you know, satanic panic or um, whatever. It's yeah. like, you know, the children, we need to protect the children. And that's like the excuse for whatever, uh, you, you know, whatever you want to uh, do to people or rope right. them into. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah, so it makes sense that it'll have this evil conspiracy in the book be like preying on children, <laughs> abducting and feasting on children under a comet pizza. It's it seemed that, like I feel like I would like even lean into it into the adaptation, like the poet who is writing things. Like I would have her, I would have her be writing these like. I don't know, like zines like 4chan or blog posts or something. Yeah, like yeah. 4chan blog posts, and then she like decides like that like it's not getting it's not getting out there enough. And then I might even have like um uh in the 2025 section when like they're actually like at war with the the anchorites i might like have it be like out that the like this theory you know the the theories are popular now because of because this lady has gotten her message out but it doesn't right. actually it doesn't actually affect these uh elite vampire people like what do they care if people like actually know about their existence or are writing about it on 4chan or whatever it might it, it might add a little bit of a frisson of reality into the whole thing yeah or maybe you show one of them like uh is like working for the president or Mitch McConnell <laughs> or something you know? <laughs> they're they're you know the power behind the power right always um <laughs> like licking their lips easily <laughs> yeah warm tongue <laughs> um did you have a? Did you have any ideas? I, I think we both agree that this should probably be a show. I don't think that there's any way you can make a movie out of it, right? 
no. No. Um, they would like each section yeah. would be like five minutes long, right? I guess if you, I mean, I guess you could do it if you really had to. Mm. It would just be the first section and the Hugo Lamb section, and you would skip the middle part. You would skip the middle part, and then yeah. you would just have her be when she's older. Marius Marinus shows up and is like, "Here's what really happened with Hugo Lamb." Yeah, and here's why it's right. important because those middle sections are not super. There's like a couple things that happen. I hope no matter what happens with this adaptation, because I think that you could totally lop this last part of this novel off and it would just be because it, it just comes to a conclusion. It's like the the Hollywood version of this like finishes with a big battle and Holly's safe and everything's okay at the end, right? Yeah. And, uh, I love the I love so much the like to me that like I would still enjoy the novel. It would be like a four star novel for me with with that. But um, I think that the fact that it flashes forward and it has this extremely dark and bittersweet ending where the characters like no matter what, no matter what you do in your life and no matter if you win or lose or whatever, we are all like going to die. And like there's something like that's intractable in that our civilization has like time limits on it as well. Like the planet itself has like some limitations. And since that's the overall theme of the novel in so many ways, I, I think it's really great that that was included in the last bit. And I hope that no matter how this comes to um, an adaptation, that that's included in it, too. Yeah, I, I was just thinking that. Um... I feel like most most movies or, or stories that uh, you know have a, a quote unquote happy ending um, kind of end with its like promise of like immortality in some way, you know, like and then the characters lived forever, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. happily and this ever one, after. Yeah, and this this one very much doesn't. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's the it, like when is a the the only the difference between a, like a comedy and a tragedy, right? Is when you put the the period down on the on the yeah. story. Yeah, because yeah, if it ended with the, at the um, previous section, it's a ha it's a completely happy ending. You know, mm -hmm, they right, won. we won. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, do you do you have a? Oh, and actually, uh, what's I the? Uh, I promise I'm going to get right to the showrunner in just a second. But one last thought that I had is a couple times when I was reading this too, I wondered if this might not make a great graphic novel um, series. Hmm. Um, Maybe I got. I imagine like some of the special effects would look really cool, like. Like if I were to draw this, I would kind of take some inspiration from a little bit like how Mike Mignola sometimes draws things, like the way he draws supernatural things, so that they have like a little, they're a little one step back from uh, full, full, full on Hollywood kind of things. And I was okay. imagining that the that the I don't know, I could imagine like a lot of the different things happening in a in a, a longer graphic novel or a short series of graphic novels, and I thought it could maybe it could maybe be a good fit. Okay, with Mike Mignola or someone like him. Well, Mike Mandola wouldn't do it, but like somebody <laughs> like, you know, like someone who there's a lot of artists who have been influenced by him and could like, you know, like kind of vibe on it. Like uh, one of Mike Mandola's great uh, collaborators, Duncan Frigredo, would be a great uh, version to could do an awesome version of this, I'm sure. Sure. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, but uh, I did not uh, come up with anyone for to show on this, but it sounds like you did. I did. Well, and I don't think that they would actually do it because um, I think that they are very interested in doing their own original work. It's a it's a, a pair of creators. Um, uh -huh. But if someone who would work kind of in this vein, I think it would work really well for the Bone Clocks. And that's um, Jansha Frisha and Baron Bo Odar, who did Dark and the upcoming 1899. OK. Yeah. And I, I think that they like they showed that they're really able to juggle like kind of like everyday life 
um, like the emotional feelings of like people and um, their interactions with each other, teenage angst. They also showed that they could like manage multiple time periods really well, um, including like specifically like the 80s and the future and the and things like that. So overall, I was like them or someone who is inspired by them. Like that's the kind of vibe and look that I would get for it. And plus also, I think that they did a good job of like making the serial killer element of dark quite scary and mm -hmm. i would and I, I think you should lean into that and make the evil vampires in um in uh, the bone clocks quite scary as well yeah i could see that they need to at least get their casting director yeah because the casting on dark was unbelievable right for the for the people of in multiple uh, the at uh, different time periods in their life yeah, i was like, like how that. did you get a, the exact younger version of that guy yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, I actually, I'm so sorry. I keep asking different questions, but that beggars the question too. Had, did, I, did you ever consider whether or not this would work as a not keeping each thing in its own episode, but like splitting things up and like going back and forth and moving back and forth in time? Yeah, I mean, I guess I, no, I guess I didn't think about it in a way of like going back and forth in time. I was thinking more about like intercutting, like not yeah. keeping it tightly focused on one character. Mm. So, you know, cutting away to what the horologists or... Um, Anchorites are doing while you know Holly is at this wedding, right? Yeah, what Hugo Lamb up to, and yeah. But the progression of time seems like it's kind of important in this, right? Like the the you can't go backwards; you only can go forwards in some ways. Yeah, I guess that. Yeah, I don't know. It, yeah, I guess that's interesting because that's kind of more the vibe of Cloud Atlas is that you kind of see the layers of time of like, right? Oh, this used to be this thing, and like I could see it like. I don't think this exact scene happens in Cloud Atlas or anything, but I could see like a, a thing where it's like you have the characters in uh, space and then you cut and it's that same space like in a, a hundred years and it's mm -hmm, totally different, mm -hmm. but it's still recognizably the same or something. Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. right? Yep, yep, yep. I bet Cloud Atlas might uh, that might that that's one that might get remade as a TV show against someday also. Yeah. I wouldn't be I wouldn't be super surprised because they were trying to fit a lot into a into a movie. Yeah, what do you think of that movie? As a it's sidebar. It was it was totally okay. Like yeah. uh like I, I it didn't bother me. Um I it's not great, it's not bad, but there's some cool moments and cool scenes in it. They they bit off a lot in, in one movie though. Yeah, I think they made a weird decision on casting to like have the same actors play a lot of the same parts. Yeah. Which exactly. is not really thematically relevant, you know? Right. I don't know if it right. totally fits as a choice. And it also led to like weird racial stuff <laughs> right where they have people like yeah, uh, like hugo yeah. weaving playing a korean guy or something right exactly mm -hmm. yeah. and it's it, it it's not it, it's like they missed they they missed a maybe they missed a point in it although uh yeah i think david mitchell was quite involved in that in that and i know he was a writer on the most recent matrix film also he was like one oh, of wow. the he was like wait like so i think he's 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 buddies with the the wachowskis cool okay actually that just made me think of the Wachowskis as possible showrunners for this. Sure. I, I, I was just remembering that uh, that show Sense8, which I don't know if you right. watched, but this is, that's I, kind of in the same wheelhouse. Mm -hmm. Like uh, everyday life, but the all like global everyday life, but then there's like uh, some sort of like supernatural or superhuman thing going on at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a one-to-one, -one, but it's kind of like, mm -hmm. oh, I could see something there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Overall, I think the after our discussion, I wasn't a hundred percent sure, but um, after our discussion, I think I'm, I'm I feel pretty good about the potential for the Bone Clocks to be brought to TV if they if they if they manage to trim it down, but like make it, you know, have enough mm -hmm. energy that the the audience keeps coming back uh, episode after episode. 
Mm -hmm. I actually just thought of another possible showrunner for this. And I don't know if they're also either a total fit because of the um the scale of this with like the you know the 80s to the future yeah but, uh the netflix show the oa oh yes created mm -hmm. by brit marling um i thought it was a pretty cool show um <laughs> i don't know if uh, did you watch it i was super into the show when it started and then like the further and further along it went i was like what is this show and then like by the time i got to the end i was like oh my god i got like totally punked by this show it was like <laughs> I like because I was like I was on board. I was like, this is gonna be an amazing show. The first episode's great. The second episode's good. And then I was like, by the time we got to the end, I was like, oh my god, I got tricked into <laughs> spending like eight or nine hours of my time watching this show. And I was, I was like, I'm never gonna. I like, I was like, I'll never watch the second part of it. I'm not doing it. This is not. Oh for really? Me. You didn't. You didn't even watch the second season. No, I didn't watch okay. the second season. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. No, I was blown out by the by the end of the first okay. season. No, I was completely on board for the whole first season. Although I th I think the first episode is like doesn't really clue you into what the show is at all. Mm -hmm. It's the second episode that you need to watch. But um, yeah, and then the second season it it gets weird, like it like weirder than you think it might get. Like <laughs> uh, I I, th I don't know. I thought it was cool. No, and I mean, like, you know, like, uh, like all power to the creators who create like something that's too weird for me or like that, like I'm not into, um, that doesn't mean that their thing is bad or that it's like bad to be weird. I just was like, it, it did, you know, it didn't work for me, but, um, yeah, the, it, we're like way off topic, but <laughs> the, <laughs> one of the things I really liked about that show is it's like totally goofy and new agey, but like so sincere about it that it's like yeah. really heartfelt. Like they do yeah. that weird like dancing thing to like well we don't want to spoil it. Right. Yeah. They do this weird performative dance thing. Yeah. And it's really goofy, but I was totally on board. I was like, this works. <laughs> and I'm 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 so I'm I'm so happy for anyone who get gets to get their honestly there's so, like it's not like other stuff. And so like Yeah. I'm happy that like someone was able to get um, kind of a weird vision on the screen. Thank God. That's fantastic. It just wasn't for me. Right. Totally. I can see that. Oh, perfect. Well, I think that that wraps it up for the bone clocks pretty much. Um, yeah. It's a really fun novel. I would say read it. Um, my second reading of it, like some parts in the middle sort of did drag, but um, they, I, th I thought that David Mitchell just wrapped it up in such an excellent way. And uh, by the end, I was like, this is a great, great novel. And I think it probably could be made into a really cool TV show. Yeah. Where does it rank for you on his other books of the ones you've read? Uh, I'll do a really quick. Uh, I'll say I haven't read all, a lot. I've only, I think I've only read four, um, but I'll say maybe... Blade House is number four, Cloud Atlas is number three, this one is number two, and um, Black Swan Green is number one. Oh, Black Swan. Okay. I think I put this in number one. Uh, I think I've, I've read all those ones, and I've also read Utopia Avenue. Um, yeah, which I'm halfway through. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I wouldn't break it down like the rankings of all of them, but I, I, this, I think, is my favorite of them. I, I, and I think this is, if, you, if someone's going to read one david mitchell novel i think it's this one more more so than cloud atlas i think um, uh -huh. i think in the past probably and he's probably still best known for cloud atlas but now if anyone was like i want to read a david mitchell novel well my number one is i'd be like well read black swan green if you want to read a cool teenage story that's really down to earth mm -hmm. um but if you if you really want to get to know what this author is all about read the bone clocks for sure cool 
we have a special plugs, right? Yeah, oh. yeah. Normally we do our plugs here, but we were gonna. <laughs> What's this? This website, Shepherd. Yeah, it's Shepherd, and and I, I had done a list for them before, uh, where I talked about my, some of my favorite Quebec graphic novels, um, and I thought, uh, why not? Why don't we do another one, me and you, and we'll do one on um, our list is called the best graphic novels that are just begging to be brought to life on the screen, and it just came out on Shepherd.com. Yes, we should just go through these. Yeah, I think we could just go through these. We the, the, now these are like not like the be all end all of the graphic novels that we think should be made into TV shows. But, um, you know, you have to pick five. And so these were the five that we picked and we, you know, we tried to have a kind of interesting list. Uh, so the first one is the one that we have already done a whole episode on. Uh, that black hole. Yeah, we don't we don't even have to say much about it. Black hole yeah. by Charles Burns. We are if you're interested, listen to our episode about it. We definitely think that this one could be made into a pretty cool movie. Mm -hmm. Go listen to that episode. <laughs> the rest of these we have not done episodes on. Uh, so then the next one, we have The Prince and the Dressmaker by Jen Wang. Mm -hmm. uh, charming little young adult book. We say this young adult or middle grade? I think it's young adults, right? Cause, well, I don't know, because there's like a little more romance in it. So I think that when there's like more romance, it becomes like a YA novel or yeah. graphic novel. Yeah. Yeah, you're probably right. Yeah. And it's about a prince who likes to dress as a woman and the dressmaker who makes his dresses. Yeah. And a little and, romance uh, between them. Yeah. They have a little romance. Things go up and down. Um, the, this is just a fun little, it's a, it's totally a fun little book. Uh, there are some like kind of weird complications. Um, the author decided to set this like in the real world. Um, like it's set in Paris in the early 20th century. And so it's like, it creates some like really weird, not only is it a little unrealistic, but then like there's even some like weird problematic elements that come into creep into the plot that were unnecessary. So it's like kind of an unforced error. It should have just been like the Grand Duchy of uh, Mertovia or something like that, I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But and they seem to have been un unaware of this. Yeah, I think I think so. I think the and it, it like slipped through the cracks. I, I'm, I'm surprised that the editors didn't like yeah, it was the first thing I thought after reading about 40 pages of it. I was like, oh, this is weird. But um, <laughs> other than that, my like the second and third things and fourth things I thought was I was like, oh, this is just cute. It's a really cute little story. Mm -hmm. It's a it's very inclusive and it's about like, you know, people being true to themselves. I think it could work really well either as live action or it could be animated. Um, yeah, I'm kind of visualizing um, something along the lines of Bridgerton or Heartstopper mm -hmm. on Netflix. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like a one one season show totally or like a a little bit like cruella too cruella oh. was really like had like a fun vibe with fashion and stuff yeah uh, absolutely. i'm sure i'm sure that there's like a lot of people who would like love the show because there'd be great dresses and great clothing and all the ups and downs i think it would be a lot of fun yeah totally but yeah it should take place in a fictional kingdom yeah you don't have to do much to make it uh work out pretty easily yeah so the next we have on the list the sandman mystery theater which we have mentioned in our episode on the netflix show sandman mm -hmm. and it's kind of a kind of a spin-off of that yeah. comic show of that comic yeah. series I think that that's totally appropriate to say. It's a, like it's a reboot of the old Sandman superhero comics from the golden age of comics, and uh, but it basically takes the idea that Wesley Dodds, the main character, is driven by his dreams to become a crime fighter in 1930s New York. 
Mm-hmm. Um, to me, this is just a would be a surefire hit. I think it's great. Uh, like I think of all of all the things on the list, this is the one I I think would be the coolest TV show in some ways because it has like it's very very down to earth. Like there's no like crazy superheroics. Um, Wesley Dodd's costume would look fantastic on film because it's basically mm-hmm. he wears a he wears a suit and a fedora and a gas mask and he has a cool little gun or a gas gun. Yeah. Does he still um, does he still leave sand on his um the people he captures in the in this? He I leaves, can't remember. He leaves the little origami uh oh, okay. figures in this one, I think. I think that's yeah. what he leaves there. Um and he's cool. He's like a great character. He's like a kind of a schlubby guy. He's like not like a he's not like a, he's man's a little man. nerd. Yeah. Yeah, he's like intellectual and he brings his like intellectual prowess and and thoughts to the thing. But sometimes he gets in these fights and like has a really hard time and like kind of gets beat up. Uh, he has a great foil with his romantic partner, uh, Diane Belmont, who ends up being is, I think, a great, great character overall. Like, I'm a fan of this comic. I think it's under underrated. I think that um, it's always, always been out of print all the time for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Um, it has art by somebody who I it's early art by him, but I, it's art by one of, I think, like the greats in the comic, the modern comic book era, which is Guy Davis. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think he he just slams uh as art this is relatively early in his career but it's still great um yeah i think it's like a little bit of superheroes murder mysteries serial killers and then also like the show is very thematically about like the rise of fascism like the way that minorities are treated the the way that women are treated it's spot on for today i don't i don't think you could make a better show than this yeah and it seems like um i always remember this like it's totally just a procedural right yeah I remember the comics would always do like a four episode storyline each time. And then it would, they would reset into another four episodes. Uh, I mean, four issues. So it's like perfect to like be episodic. You could do it, you know, as long running as, as you want or short yep. running, you know, whatever. Yeah. Yep. But it, yeah, it's basically Perry Mason, but he puts on a gas mask and gasses people. <laughs> yeah. And it's <laughs> a secret know, like- identity. Yeah, and and then the the episodes have like these kind of like low key villains, but who are like, you know, kind of like beyond your average thug. You know, like they're the scorpion or the tarantula or the you know whatever. And uh, those are all great like guest starring possibilities for people. I might, I think I might make you do an episode about this show eventually. So I'll I won't make you, won't make us talk about it anymore. But this is my um this is my quote unquote sleeper hit of uh of the TV season. Yeah, and then next we have I Killed Adolf Hitler by Jason which is great it's in that uh uh, classic jason style of everyone's a little funny animal Uh, Mm -hmm. skinny skinny dogs and cats Uh, (laughs) but it's this funny uh time travel caper i'd actually don't i haven't read it in a a minute so i don't remember the exact machinations of the plot but it's like um people are traveling back and forth in time and trying to kill hitler and then stopping each other from doing it and I read I reread it specifically because we were working on this. It's such a fast reader. I I also really recommend it for everybody. Yeah. But it's just so weird, like the world, because there's multiple things. Like not only is it a time travel thing, but they're also live in a weird world where contract killing is something that happens all the time. That's right. Yeah. All right. So everyone's like hiring contract killers to kill their ex wives and their like bosses and stuff. But like, and it's just as common as a, a dentist or whatever. Yeah. And I, I mean, I would just, you know, Jason draws them as animals because that's just his style. But um, yeah, it would just, it would just be, I can just see it as live action and humans yeah. and yeah. And it Absolutely. Would, and a movie. Totally. No, you just yeah. make it a great movie. And it, 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 it has like a kind of a, like a French new wave, uh, ironic 
coolness to the whole thing and uh, like i think it would tr translate superbly to the screen yeah uh and then we have through the woods by emily carroll which is a collection of horror stories yeah these are all um creepy macabre gothic yep kind of fairy tale-ish yeah any of these stand out to you as like being the ones that you would especially want to see on screen or they're all really slim and so i think that like these would benefit by being like all next to each other like there's not one where i'm like this would be a great movie by itself uh -huh. um but i'll probably any of them could be expanded to it but the way i was envisioning it is really like as a little little minute like a little mini series like kind of like how guillermo del toro has this little thing going on right now uh -huh. probably uh i think his face all red is the one that like pops out to me as being like kind of interesting okay yeah and then there's also the one about the i think it's different yeah, I think that that's the one that, that that pops out to me as being a kind of a cool one. But all of them, they they just have like um basically, I think if if people like uh like a twenty four movies like The Witch and stuff like that, they would probably enjoy like a little a little mini series of these little shorts. Mm -hmm. What if you did a uh, kind of anthology movie like Ballad of Buster Scruggs or something with it? Oh really? yeah, that would be. It that has would a be little frame story of someone being like, "Gather around, children. I'll tell you five ta tales." Yeah. That actually might be the the very best way that you could do it because uh, a lot of these stories might have a hard time even supporting uh, 40 minutes to an hour long, but uh -huh. the, could be a very good 15 to 20 minutes. That would be great. All right. I approve. That's our list. Five graphic novels. <laughs> So uh, as always, uh, listeners can let us know what they think and if they have graphic novels that they uh Think would be great in fact somebody just did on our on our instagram let me know that, that what they'd really like to see is they'd like to see french uh film versions of miss patouche and uh beauté by uh Karascoet. and i agree miss don't touch me yeah mr yes. yeah miss don't touch yeah. me and uh, and beauty by uh Karascoet. and um and i agree well on both of those i think miss don't touch me would be very easy and beauty would be very hard <laughs> beauty would be hard you really need to believe that she's beautiful so mm -hmm. I mean, the most beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, the most. <laughs> and the, and and then you have to the, the poor actress that you have to cast as being like totally the I'm horrible or whatever. Oh yeah, you just do like um you just do like prosthetic ears or something. Mm -hmm, or, yeah. mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, CGI nose. You or you run them through like a weird AI filter that just puts them in like uh makes them makes them look look worse or something. Mm -hmm, totally. Maybe that maybe that's for the best. Cool. Well, that's our episode for today. I think. Thank you, and uh, thank you to you, and thank you to all the listeners for joining us for this first season, 2022. We'll be back in 2023. I, I had a lot of fun. This has been so cool talking with you every couple weeks mm -hmm. about all the books and movies that we want to talk about. It makes me feel nice and warm inside. <laughs> yeah, me as well. <laughs> well, in the meantime, we might, we might have a couple other mini episodes before the end of the year, but this is our last fall episode. Um, yeah, yeah. We, yeah. We, this is this is not go by. This is goodbye. This is so long. We're going to do, I think we're definitely going to be doing a, our best of the year, not necessarily best adaptations, but just what we liked that we yeah. enjoyed this year. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So look for that. And otherwise, we'll see you in 2023. Bye. Cool. Bye. <laughs>